Well, good morning. I'm going to be ministering for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Jesus, the abundance within. How about that, huh? Jesus, the abundance within. What I want us to see through the message today is this. Jesus is revealed in a way that far exceeds what a big portion of the body of Christ has been taught when we look beyond the natural. And I think so often we grew up in ministries that were so accustomed to looking into the natural realm. What's going on in the natural realm? I'm for healings? Absolutely. I love the manifestation of God's glory and His healings. But it didn't take very long over the years to set our appetites on that alone, that we looked into the natural alone. And I want this message to encourage us to look beyond even our own paradigm of how we understand the Scriptures. Jesus, the abundance within, hear my heart on this, He's recognized, He's revealed when we sit with Him at the table of Thanksgiving and we dine with Him. This is not a meal that we rush. It's a meal that we get to partake of every day. It's a meal that we get to sit with Christ and we get to enjoy His presence and His sweet, gentle whispers and touches. He alone knows how to touch us in the deepest of areas. Now, I pray that you guys, every single one of you, had a wonderful Thanksgiving Day experience with your loved ones this past week and, and that you took time. You took time to reflect upon the many blessings. That's what I did. I took time to run down memory lane. I took time to think back. I was doing it again this morning in the early morning hours. I was just thinking back across my 27-year journey, almost 28-year journey with Christ and how beautiful and how precious it's been. I pray that you were able to reflect back upon all the reasons that you have to be thankful for. God loves it when we're thankful. Thanksgiving is more than a meal. It's more than an event. It's more than the fourth Thursday of every November. It's more than just a paid day off at work. It's more than just a day away from all the busyness of life. Thanksgiving is an attitude. It's an expression. It's a heart condition. True Thanksgiving really begins by knowing who we are in Christ Jesus and then cherishing the gift that He has purchased for us through the cross. That's where thanksgiving begins. And that's why I said it's so important, I believe, to think back at what God has done in our lives. We don't have to drift back very far. Maybe it was on the way to church this morning that we can find ways to go, oh, Father, you were there. You were there. I give you thanks for that. Thanksgiving, listen to me carefully, is an inner quality. And this inner quality should never be displaced by an exterior quandary. How many of you have ever been in a quandary? Come on. <laughs> you know every single one of you have been in a quandary at one time or another. And the truth of the matter is, we live in a world where we face quandaries all the time. Thanksgiving is this inner quality. It's this inner virtue on the inside of us. And there are going to be things in life that come along that try to pull us out of rest, to pull us out of peace, to pull us out of our joy, to pull us out of our thanksgiving. 
Do you know what a quandary is? Maybe you've went through one recently. A quandary is defined as a difficult situation or a practical dilemma. That's what a quandary is. Just a difficult situation we face in life. It's just a practical dilemma. Have you walked through a quandary recently? Have you walked through a difficult situation recently? Have you walked through a practical dilemma recently? If so, let me ask you a question. What happened? What happened to you during your quandary? Did you lose your thanksgiving? Did you fall apart like cotton candy when it touches the tongue? Because that can be the response so often of people when they face pressure, when they face quandaries, when they face difficult situations. They allow their inner peace, their inner joy, their inner qualities to get hijacked in a sense. They allow these things to just somehow get lost for the moment. Thanksgiving is the response that flows from the abundance within. Christ is the abundance within. I want you to see that this morning. Christ is our abundance within. So if thanksgiving is an inner quality, it stands to reason that if true thanksgiving comes from within, then, listen to me now, then it means our input determines our output. Would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Your input determines your output. If x-rays determine that little Johnny swallowed a quarter, and then when you opened up little Johnny, you took out two dimes and a nickel, you would go, what just happened? But we live in a world that there's so much confusion. There's so much mixture that we just don't even know. We think something is a certain way. And then it, we have this curveball thrown at us, this change up in life. The enemy likes to use this because he loves to put us in situations where we lose our thanksgiving. We don't trust God. We let go of the promises that he has given us. If we take in pure grace, then pure grace is what is going to flow from our bellies. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. My body does not like codeine. Now, your body might like it, but my body doesn't like it. It doesn't matter which day of the week I take it on, it makes me sick. It doesn't matter if it's in the morning, at night, or just before I go to bed, it makes me sick. If I had a son that was getting married this coming Saturday at noon, and I decided to take codeine at 9 o'clock in the morning, guess what? I would miss his wedding. Because it does that to me every single time. You see, within two hours of swallowing codeine, I am sick for the next 24 hours. So let me ask you a question. Does that create a problem in my life? No, actually, because you know what I do? I just avoid it. I avoid the input because I don't like the output. Do you see where I'm going with this thing? So if I know that this is the response it brings, then I just simply avoid it, right? In the same manner, I cannot swallow a law-based righteousness without side effects. It's just going to happen. If I take in the law, if I take in a performance-based righteousness, then guess what? I'm going to get sick in my personality. It's going to make me ill in my personality, and it's going to rob me of thankfulness. I have become more thankful over the last 10 or 12 years. Why? Because I'm 10 or 12 years older? No, but because I've changed the input of what's coming into me. 
And so that when I find myself in a difficult situation, a quandary, a practical dilemma, guess what? I've taken in so much of seeing his goodness. I've taken in so much of seeing his grace and his joy and his love for me and his care for me that my response is in direct proportion to what I've been taken in. The reason I don't like to take in the law <laughs> is because if I take in the law, what happens is I will become my own savior because it's my responsibility then to maintain the law in order to be righteous with him. And so I become my own savior. Now, God has gifted me with a number of gifts and I appreciate everyone that he's given me, but I'm telling you what, I make a lousy savior, a terrible savior. How many of you know that thankfulness and unthankfulness are the easiest attitudes to detect in a person. It doesn't take very long. The forensic evidence is found in their mouth and in their mannerisms. In other words, all one has to do is simply listen to a person's words and watch their actions and you'll quickly discover if they are thankful or not. Let me ask you, are they full of praise? Are they teeming with joy? Do they value the small things in life? And I love that one because I don't look for a big bang. I don't look for an explosion to excite me. It is the little things. I think I can speak in for you as well this morning. It's the little things that we see God doing. It's those ta-da moments where we think, oh, God, you care even about the little bitty things in life. Do they value the small things in life? Do they celebrate the victories of others? Now see, it's easy to celebrate your victory, but do you take time to celebrate the victories of others? Are they givers? One of the true indexes of a heart that has been changed is that heart becomes a giving heart. It doesn't necessarily look for opportunities to give, but it doesn't pass on them either. They're always making rich deposits in somebody. Do they like to spend time with loved ones and friends? Or are they just kind of a hermit where they just like to be alone? A thankful heart says, you have something to share with me and I have something to share with you. Let's get together and be thankful together. So do you spend time with family and friends? Now, do you lift up the name of Jesus? He's not just for you. Come on. He's for me. He's for us. He's for we. He's for the world. Do you take time to lift up the name of Jesus? Friends, these are but a few. I could go on for a long time, but these are just a few of the attributes of thankful people. And these are the ways that Jesus, the abundance within us, gets expressed. Dining for me has always been more about the breaking of bread than it is the eating of bread. And that's why we tarry at the table for a long time. We make our dining experience several hours most of the time. If we were to leave within two hours of sitting down, that's a very short visit. Does it take two hours to eat? Of course not. But it's not about the eating of the bread. It's about the breaking of the bread, breaking of the bread with one another. And again, that's why we spend so much time at the table. 
At the table, it's a time when we can express kindness. It's a time when we can express hospitality. It's a time when we can express generosity. It's an occasion to reach across the table and knit hearts with family and friends and guests as well. It's a time to extract from one another, but it's also a time to impart to one another. It's an opportunity to laugh. It's an opportunity to listen. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to lavish on one another. It's an opportunity to love. Valerie and I not only reach across the table while dining, we reach up and we reach out from the table and we pull our waiting staff into our conversation and our dining experience. You don't see most people do that, but we love to do that. I have had the privilege over the years of leading some of my service to the Lord while dining. I did that recently. We've had them sit down at our table. We've had them tell us everything that they're going through. We've had opportunity to pray for them. We've had opportunity to bless them. Lots of things. And recently, one of our servers at Olive Garden came to our table and she said, Boy, I knew you were here. And we were off in a remote area and she was not even our waitress. She said, I knew you were here. And I looked up at her and said, how did you know we were here? She said, I could feel it when you walked in. And I thought, boy, is that true? Or is she just saying that? But then I realized that light does emit. Light takes up space. Light conquers. She said, I knew you were here. And she never changed her story. Salt. It flavors things. And when we walk in, we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. And people should know it. Maybe she was just honest enough to say, I knew you were here. And she wasn't looking to butter us up. She wasn't our waitress that day. She had no reason to say all those things. I thought that is really, really cool. Again, dining, come on, dining, and we all love to go out and eat. We all love to go out and dine. Dining should be more about the breaking of bread than it is the eating of bread. Two disciples fell into a deep quandary after Jesus had been crucified and buried. Their names were Cleopas and his wife Mary. They were the two disciples that Jesus got into step with on the road to Emmaus after he had been resurrected from the dead. Think about that for a moment. Jesus takes his first walk with Cleopas and Mary, and they're kind of bummed out. And the scriptures tell us that they were not even aware that it was Jesus because the scriptures say that he had hidden his identity from them. Cleopas and his wife Mary's hopes and dreams had been fragmented. It would have been like taking a bottle and dropping it onto concrete and it just changes the whole constitution of the bottle. That's what their emotions were like. Have you ever been like that? Sure you have. Their emotions were absolutely fragmented. If there would have been a forensic autopsy done on their hearts in that moment, it would have produced anything but thanksgiving. The abundance of joy 
and anticipation within Cleopas and Mary had been ravaged through the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus. Why? Was it because Jesus was such a good friend? No, friends, that's too shallow. It was more than that. You see, their emotions felt like they had been put in a ninja blender and hit on high for a little while. You know why? Because they had hope for so long. And they had believed for so long. And they had prayed for so long that this man that they called Jesus was the one that had come to redeem Israel. But now the quandary had come. And because of the exterior quandary, it had reached deep inside of Cleopas and his wife Mary, and it had pulled out their inner quality of virtue, of peace. They had thought that he was the one. They were sure that it was him. But now they had to face the fact that the stone had been rolled in front of the tomb and the man behind that stone must not have been the one they were looking for. Jesus lay in silence behind the stone, crucified. Cleopas and his wife, Mary, wanted to celebrate the gift of Jesus with all mankind. Why? Because that's what Thanksgiving does. It celebrates others' victories. Get in the habit of doing that. You may have to be intentional about it at first. The Scriptures tell us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to celebrate with those who celebrate. Celebrate another person's victories. Their difficult situation and their practical dilemma had shaken them to the very core of who they were. They had allowed their inner quality to be displaced, put on the back burner, if you will, by their exterior quandary. Now, you've been there before. You've been there before. I've been there before. I don't try to live there because you know what I know? Every time I face the storm, every time I face a quandary, every time I face a difficult situation, I am aware there is an expiration date on whatever I'm going through. Number one. And number two, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. I've got to get my mind off of the situation, off of the practical dilemma, and fixate my mind on the one who has never let me down. His name is Jesus Christ. Quandaries, difficult situations, practical dilemmas. This is the most common tool that the enemy uses on God's people. He creates chaos in our emotions. He fans the flame of disappointed feelings. He wreaks havoc in our hearts. He composes doubt in our minds. Again, what's his motive? Come on, think about it. Why would he do something like that? Because the scriptures say that he's a thief and thieves come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is his purpose. See, he can't destroy our salvation. Why? Take a look at the sign behind me here because it is a finished work. 
So he's not after your salvation. He's not been able to take salvation away from anybody. So he's not after our salvation, but what he's after is our expectation. You see, we have hopes and dreams and we have expectations in life. And when they're disappointed, when they don't come through for us, then we get all bummed out. We get our eyes off of Christ. And this is what the enemy likes to do. When we find ourselves in a quandary, remember that is a difficult situation. That is a practical dilemma. Whether it's of our own making or at the hands of another person, we need to remind ourselves of the 911 rescuing truths that are found on the right side. Hear me now. On the right side of the semicolon in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Let's take a look at the scripture. It says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now I want you to make note of the semicolon after destroy, because what I encourage you to do is to look at the great truth found on the right side. If you stare at everything from the left side of the semicolon, guess what? He has a way to keep you in your quandary. He has a way to keep you in your difficult situation. But look at the truth found on the right side of the semicolon. Jesus said, I am come, come on, that they might have life, come on, that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly, come on. Beautiful truth, beautiful news, isn't it? Can I have the privilege for just a moment of walking the word abundantly down a red carpet aisle? Can we give it the glamour? Can we give it the spotlight? Can we give it the expression that it deserves? I want you to see the word abundantly from the Greek. It is the Greek word perissos, perissos. That is the Greek word for it, abundantly. Look at the definition. It is a cornucopia of profound truths for us. The word abundantly means beyond. So Jesus said, I'm going to give you a life that's beyond, beyond anything you could think or imagine. It means superabundant in quantity, or superior in quality. Abundant means excessive, exceedingly abundantly above. Does that sound a little familiar? More abundantly, advantage. I like that one. We always have the advantage. You always have the advantage. Don't ever think of yourself that you're behind the enemy. He is under our feet. We always have the advantage over him. We have more power than he has. I mean, it's advantage. Exceedingly higher, beyond measure, more. How about this one now? Superfluous. How often do you use that word? Superfluous, above and beyond, pressed down, shaken together, running over, superfluous, over and above, more than is necessary. This is the kind of life that Jesus said, I've come to give you. I've come to give you a life that looks like this. It's more than what you needed. It's more than what was necessary. And then I came across a word that I can't say for sure I've ever seen in my life, a word called super added. Super added? That's a word? Yes, that's a word. So this is what Jesus has done. He's added his super to who we are in Christ, to this abundant life that he's given us. 
Isn't that an awesome definition? This is what you possess. See, if I just said you have life, well, a lot of things have life. A worm has life. A dog has life. Mold has life. But Jesus said, this kind of life has been super added to you. It's more than what you need. It's abundant. It's beyond and above anything you could ever think or imagine. This is the kind of life. This is the measure of life that we have. Awesome. This is what's behind that word, that simple little word that we end John 10.10 with that we've never really given much attention to. Do you see why I wanted to walk it down the red carpet runway for you? Because it's full of expression. It tells you, wow, this is what I possess. This Zoe kind of life is abundant. Now, as we stare at the definitions for the abundant life that we possess, this is not a time for our eyes to glaze over, okay? You ever notice that? You stare at something too long, your eyes glaze over. I did it the other night at the theater. They glazed over, then they glazed shut for a little while until my wife said, honey, you're snoring. It absolutely happened. This is not a time for our eyes to glaze shut. It's not a time for us to turn our nose up at. It's not a time for our ears to wax shut to. When we are facing an opposition, come on, I said when we are facing an opposition, I'm talking about an opposition that has come to steal and to kill and to destroy, then we must remember the words that Jesus, the abundance within us, spoke. He said, I am come that ye may have life and that you may have life more abundantly, above and beyond anything you could ever think or imagine. Beautiful, isn't it? Now, did you know that no matter which number you start with, come on, help me out here, Treva. You were a teacher at one time. Come on. It doesn't matter which number you start with. If you were to take that number and divide it in two, and then divide it in two again, and then divide it in two again, and divide it in two, you could spend an eternity, and you could never reduce the original number down to zero. Did you know that? <laughs> you can't do it. I don't care how small the crumb is, it can be cut in half. And now you have a smaller crumb. You can cut that in half. Now you have a smaller crumb. You can cut that in half. You can never reduce it down to zero. And no matter how many times we blow it, no matter how many times we fail, we can never return to the zero that we were before Jesus. The abundance within released his Zoe kind of life inside of us. It's the life that John 10.10 is referring to. Friends, <laughs> we live in the super added life of Christ. This truth alone should give us good reason to celebrate and it should give us cause to be thankful. Amen. Understanding the Greek definition of abundantly, you know what it does for me? It helps me to better understand the passage that contains the words, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I have been meditating on that scripture in recent weeks, and I understand it, but I thought, Lord, show me how to understand it deeper yet more simple. Where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. And as I said in my office yesterday, the way the Holy Spirit did is he drew this picture in my mind of the Indianapolis 500. All those screaming cars, round around that two and a half mile track, all these screaming cars with all this power that they harness and all this ability and all these skilled drivers. But one thing I notice is that someone only takes the lead for a while. And this guy's in front. Now he's got to pull over in the pit stop and get his tires changed. And the next guy takes over. And then he's in the lead for a while. And then a third guy's. And this is the way it works in a race. So someone different is out in front all throughout the race. But there's only one winner. When we think about where sin increased, but grace increased all the more, we cannot look at it so shallow as that in the end, that when the race is done, when it's all said and done, grace is going to win. No. And so what the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart and said it this way. He said, sin never outpaces grace. Because when the accelerator pedal of sin is increased, then the accelerator pedal of grace is increased all the more. So it can never catch up with it. It can never outpace it. If it did, then what have I got left? What can I do? Then I fall back into works because Jesus didn't do it on his end, so now I've got to do it on my end. Do you see the quandary you get caught in? You see the conundrum you fall into? It's a super added grace, friends. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so someone might think when you hear something like that, then why should I care about sinning? If that's the truth, and it is, then why should I care about sinning? Come on, now think about this for a second. Maybe it's not a problem with you, but it may be a problem with someone you're going to encounter at some point in time. Well, you know, they just get real loose with it. They go, well, you know, I'm under grace. I can just go out and sin all I want. And in a sense, that is true, but it will wreck you, right? So why should I not sin? How about because of the love for Jesus, the abundance within? Is that a good reason? It's the best reason. How about the love for Jesus? You say, well, maybe I don't love him enough. Change the input. What you put in is what comes out. If you keep taking in law and rules and it just keeps beating you over the head and making you work, you're not going to fall in love with someone like that. You fall in love with generosity. You fall in love with kind people. You fall in love with loving people. Why shouldn't I sin? How about because we're not compatible sin? We are new creatures in Christ. You don't like it when you sin. I don't like it when I sin. You just shake yourself and go, that is not me. Don't beat yourself up. Don't put yourself under condemnation. But you just go, that is not who I am. I know in my spirit, I am not compatible with sin. How about because sin makes us sick in our personalities and attitudes? And that is so true. You find a law-based righteousness, you're going to find people that are sick in their personality and the way they treat people and their attitudes. How about because sinning does not showcase a life of thankfulness. Is that true? If I steal my neighbor's lawnmower, that's not being thankful for my neighbor, is it? It's not showcasing thankfulness. How about not sinning because of the 
more than necessary gift that has been super added to our lives. When we stop and we think about that truth from the word abundantly that he has super added, he's given us more than we, than we need, more than enough. And we think about what a precious gift that you held nothing back. Why not meditate on that truth for a while? How about because sin kills the abundance of joy and anticipation of good things? Because if you're under condemnation, you will not be full of expectation at the same time. How about not sinning? Because if we live by the inner qualities, then we minimize our exterior quandaries. That's true. You cannot stop others from getting you into situations all the time. But you can stop yourself from getting yourself by living by the Spirit, by living by the inner qualities of life. In Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, we find these words. These are the scriptures I was just referring to. It says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, the law was to show us that we're guilty, but it had no power to take away our sins, and it had no power to stop us from sinning. So he begins here by saying the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, not decrease, increase. Then look at these words. But where sin increased, that's the ones I was just telling you about. This is where it comes from. He says, but where sin increased, come on, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, those two words increased are two different Greek words. They're not the same. Same English word. So we group them all into one little thing, but no, two different words. It says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. That's that abundant life Jesus was talking about. To bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, a man could increase his sin so much that he would put his calculator into cardiac arrest. Just keep tabulating. I sin today, 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 I sin today. You're keeping track of your sin. You're sinning so much that you're wearing out calculator after calculator. Is that the way you really want to go through life? No. Let's get to the right side of the semicolon where we find the Zoe kind of life. Forget about all that the thief comes for to steal, kill, and destroy. Let's get to the Zoe kind of life that Christ talked about. Let's get to the right side of the semicolon where we find the inexhaustible, superabounding, superadded, more than we need grace of God. Let's go to the right side of the semicolon where we find rest from quandaries, rest from difficult situations, rest from practical dilemmas. Let's get on the right side of the semicolon where we find the abundance of joy and the anticipation of the good things that we first experienced when we first gave our life to Him and began to walk with Jesus. Let's go to the right side of the semicolon where we find renewed dreams, refreshed hopes, and revised 
inspirations. Let's go, friends, to the right side of the semicolon where we find Jesus, the abundance within. Friends, it's sleight of hand by the enemy and it is trickery of our emotions to wait, come on, to wait for perfect circumstances to be our barometer to give thanks in all things. If we're waiting for perfect circumstances in order to feel thankful and to sound thankful and to express thanksgiving, you'll probably be waiting for the rest of your life. The Greek word behind our English word increase, the one in Romans chapter 5 I just read for you, where it declared that grace increased all the more. Do you know that word is only used twice in the entire Bible? It's only used twice. Once in Romans chapter 5 and the other time in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4. Take a look at these words. This is the Apostle Paul again. He's the only guy that used this word. He says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glory in, in you. I told you, you learn to celebrate others. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glory of you. I am filled with comfort. And then he says, I am exceeding. That's the other time the Greek word behind our English word increased is used. See, they use a different word in English, so we would never know it right there. But the Apostle Paul says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful. In other words, he said, I'm superfluous with joy. I have more joy than I can contain. I am so joyful here. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Okay, Paul, what just happened? You started off really good here, Paul. We don't like that word tribulation, though, do we? See, we don't care about that word. Wait a minute now. What just happened here, Paul? You see, the word tribulation means pressure. It means affliction. It means anguish. It means burden. It means persecution. It means trouble. Now, the Apostle Paul just said... I am over the top joyful in all our pressure, in all our persecution, in all our tribulation, in every trouble we face, in every anguish we deal with, in every burden we have to carry, in every affliction, every pressure I deal with, he says, it cannot stop the joy inside of me. That is an amazing truth. I have yet to meet anybody like that. Come on. Now, I've met some people that are better than others at it. But I have never met a human being that lived what he just said right there. But if Paul lived it, then you can live it. Paul's not greater than you. Jesus shed the same blood for you as he did for Paul. So this is an amazing scripture to me. The Apostle Paul was not joyful because of tribulation. He says in the scripture he was joyful in tribulation. He didn't say, come on, tribulation, bring it on. Oh, no. Tribulation has a way of finding you, right? It's called a quandary. 
It's a difficult situation. It's a practical dilemma. And the Apostle Paul just knew, if I speak these words of Christ, if I keep telling people about this grace thing, oh, trouble is going to find me. Persecution is going to find me. Pressure is going to try to tackle me. Trouble is going to be napping at my heels like a little dog. Anguish. Burden. He said, it's going to find me. So I love that because he's saying he's joyful in tribulation. Whenever it shows up, it doesn't change his inner quality. You say, boy, how can that be? Because his source of joy came from Jesus, the abundance within. Paul had discovered that his inner qualities could not be extinguished by exterior quandaries. You say, Pastor Mark, boy, I'd like to be like Paul. You can be. I'd sure like to be like that man of God. How did he become so grounded in God? How did he have such a revelation of God that caused him to Respond the way he responded. How was he so fearless? How was it that Paul was the one who discovered and even wrote the words where sin increased, grace increased all the more? How did it happen for him? Friends, his insights were the reflection of his input. That's all. He wasn't making this stuff up. He wasn't acting. You see, that's the definition of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is called an actor. Paul wasn't being a hypocrite here. Paul was living out what had already been poured into him. You see that? Paul had taken in the undiluted gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and he took it in from Christ himself. Christ is the one who taught him this. Christ is the one who got along with him and changed him. Christ is the one who is your teacher. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. He's the one who gets along with you and teaches you. We just kind of backfill here on Sunday mornings, friends. But it's Christ in you, the scriptures say, that it's the hope of glory. You see, once you realize that there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation, and that there is no difficult situation or practical dilemma that you could ever find you in that can snatch you from daddy's hands, then the bread will be broken, Jesus will be revealed, and the checkered flag will wave in front of you all the days of your life declaring that Jesus, the abundance within, is exceedingly, abundantly above and beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. Jesus walked the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his wife Mary. It was on that journey that Jesus opened the Scriptures to them. And the Scriptures tell us that their hearts began to burn within them, but they still didn't know it was Jesus. But he was a pretty fine-sounding preacher. He got everything right. From the prophets to the psalmists 
He got it all right. You see, it was on that journey that Jesus allowed the abundance within him to influence and restore the inner qualities that had been displaced by the external quandaries that Cleopas and his wife Mary had found themselves in. When the three of them, that's Cleopas, Mary, and Jesus, reached the home of Cleopas and Mary, the Scriptures tell us that they strongly urged Jesus to spend the night with them. Why? Scriptures tell us because it was almost evening and the daylight was nearly gone. Sounds like a good place to lodge for the evening, doesn't it? You don't want to be journeying in wild country when the sun has went down. And so the Scriptures tell us that Jesus went in to stay with them. The evening meal was being served and Jesus made His way to the table. It was at the table that Jesus, the abundance within, was revealed. I want you to take a look at Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. While He was at the table with them, here it is, He took the bread. He blessed it broke it in pieces, and gave it to them. Then, in that moment, then, their eyes were opened, and they knew who He was, and He vanished from them. When I was reading this again recently, there were some questions that began to develop in my heart. I mean, the obvious questions. Was there something special about the way Jesus broke the bread that allowed Cleopas and Mary to recognize who he was. Did he do it in a manner that nobody else broke bread? I don't think so. Was there something special about the prayer that Jesus prayed when he blessed the bread that tipped off Cleopas and Mary? No, I don't believe that's what it was either. Perhaps, just perhaps, they caught a glimpse as he was passing the bread of his nail-scarred hands. Was that it? And I had to think about this for a while. Not trying to work out the thoughts in my mind, but by revelation of the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. That Jesus did not want them to discover who He was only from an external perspective, but rather through an internal revelation. He had reached across the table to pull His thoughtful guests into His own dining experience, and then He disappeared. You see, for Jesus, it was about the breaking of bread and not the eating of bread. He disappeared before he even ate! They said, Jesus, spend the night with us. He said, sure! But what Jesus was working toward is the revelation of who he really was. I don't want you just to see me from the outside. And I don't want you to see me only in the Scriptures. 
But I want you to see me by revelation when I sit and dine with you, whether it's at a table or in your chair at home or in your bed or on your knees. That's where I want you to find me. That's where I want you to see the true revelation of who I am. And I get that. Remember what I was telling you about? It's the little things. You can read the whole book of Psalms all 150 chapters if you want to. And they won't mean as much to you as one little whisper by Jesus, maybe when you're sitting in your chair. That's the way He really wants us to see. We don't forsake the Scriptures, of course not. But our diet has to consist on dining with Him, listening to Him. Can we hear Him through the Scriptures? Of course but nothing will mean as much to you as when He speaks to you alone. Again, it was more about the breaking of bread than the eating of bread. Yesterday when I was meditating on that thought, the Holy Spirit took me back to a time many, many years ago my Two boys were very young. One was in middle school. The other one was in grade school. And I was taking them on a Monday morning from South Beloit, Illinois, back to Freeport, Illinois, to take them to school. And so I left so that I could get the one to school and then take the other one to an entirely different school. And as I drove in on Stevenson Street, it's a one-way all the way through town, as I drove in on Stevenson Street, there were people walking up and down the sidewalk. And my eyes happened to glance to a man that was walking down on my left-hand side there, and I heard the Holy Spirit whisper these words in my heart. I want you to feed that man. He's hungry. It's 7.30 in the morning. And I discounted that. I thought, wow, that was just a strange thing. Come on, you've done this before, haven't you? You have this impression he said, I want you to feed that man. He's hungry. And I thought, well, that, that's just got to be me. Why would, and then I thought, why would I think something like that? I don't have time to feed anybody. I've got to drop my kids off. And as I drove past him, I looked at him, and I heard the Holy Spirit say it again. I want you to feed him. He's hungry. Now, this man was not sitting on the corner with a sign, nothing like that. He was walking down the sidewalk. And so I totally forgot about it. I dropped the one son off at school, never given another thought. Ten minutes later, dropped off my little son, watched him walk to the school building, never given that another thought. And as I drove out of the parking lot, I heard the Holy Spirit say, remember that man downtown? I said, yep. He said, I want you to feed him. He's hungry. By then, the fight was over with. The wrestling match had ended. I had been pinned to the mat, essentially, this was my dialogue then with the Holy Spirit. I said, Holy Spirit, you know which street I came into town on. I said, I'm going out on a different street. I said, if he is on the street I'm leaving on, then I will recognize that is your voice and I will stop and feed him. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, you search for him. You diligently search for him. And at that point in time, I said, yes, sweet Holy Spirit, I'll do it. I spent almost 20 years living in that city. I knew every street in that city. 
I said, I'm going to look for him on every single street. And I left town that day on Main Street. And when I turned the corner on Main Street, I had driven about three blocks. And about two blocks up ahead, I could see the same man walking down the street, different street than he was on earlier. And there was this feeling that came over me that I don't have enough words to even explain to you. Confidence, boldness, compassion. And I drove by the man as I looked at him and I parked about a half a block from him. I got out of my vehicle. I walked across the street and I walked straight up to the man on the sidewalk. And I said, good morning, sir. How are you today? And the first words out of his mouth were, I'm tired and I'm hungry. And I said, I know. I've come by to feed you today. I said, why don't you just come over here and get in my vehicle. We'll go to the restaurant. We went to the restaurant. By this time, my confidence is off the chart. Friends, you couldn't make this stuff up. My confidence is just soaring in anticipation that God wants to do something abundantly and above anything I could have ever planned for that day. We drove to the restaurant about two blocks down the road. And when we walked into the restaurant, the waitress walked up to us and said, I'd like to take your order. And we didn't waste any time. We turned our order in. And as I sat across from him, I said, what is your name? He said, my name is David Wright. I said, well, David, it's nice to meet you. And I started telling David about Jesus. Now, I hadn't gotten two minutes into my conversation, and David said, I want him. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit because I spent a lot of time in evangelism. It doesn't happen that quick. You got to convince them. You got to take them down the Romans road. You got to say, well, God said in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's called the Romans road. You just keep walking them along till you get up into Romans 10 and you offer them salvation. But I had no opportunity to do that. So it took me by surprise. David said, I want him. And I went, what? He said, I want him. Friends, it was one of the easiest things I had ever seen God do in my life. I just reached across the table and took him by the hands and led him to Jesus. So, so beautiful. So awesome. I took David after we were done eating. I hugged him. And gave him gifts and took him to where he needed to go. And then I disappeared from his sight. Kind of like this story in a way. You see, I had pulled David into a dining experience where I could express kindness, hospitality, generosity. It was an experience where a stranger was converted into a brother like that. As it turned out, David's encounter was more about the breaking of bread 
than it was about the eating of bread. It was an occasion to extract David from the grip of the one who came to steal and to kill and to destroy and introduce David to the one who came to give him life and life more abundantly. Now, I have a couple of questions for you. What would have happened had I not been listening to the Holy Spirit in that moment? I had not seen that done by anybody else. I was relying totally upon the Holy Spirit when I didn't even know I was relying upon the Holy Spirit. What would have happened if I would have passed? Because that seemed inconvenient. That seemed creepy. That seemed awkward. Or what would have happened if I would have just simply said, no, thank you. No, thank you, Holy Spirit. Good questions? Because we've all been there. Well, David would have continued, no doubt, to walk down Main Street. But in all likelihood, David may have never discovered the man on the road to Emmaus. He never would have got a glimpse of him. You say, Pastor Mark, if you would have said no, God would have sent somebody else. It doesn't always happen that way, friends. There are times it just doesn't happen that way. God told me that one time. He said, I'm sending you to this man to talk to him about me. And I said, can't you send somebody else? And he said, everybody else said no. And I said, well, then I'll go. And again, led him to Christ as well. Would you like to know why I stopped that day? Because I had a flora. I had an atmosphere of thankfulness on the inside of me. Thankfulness likes to share. See, that's what thankful people do. They share. Whether it's monetary or hugs or whatever is needed at the time. Thankful people share. And it was gratitude on the inside of me that fashioned to help this man in this time of need. What if I would have said no? Would God have been mad at me? What if I said no? I don't want to stop for David. Would God have been disappointed in me? No, sir. No, ma'am. The Father would have still loved me. The Father would have still been good to me. He is gracious. Come on now. He is gracious and merciful to us regardless of how gracious and merciful we are to others. Our thankful expressions does stuff for other people and it does stuff for your own heart. But God is going to be merciful. God's going to be good to me. God's going to be gracious to me regardless. The Scriptures say that He does not treat us as our sins deserve. We see that truth in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. Jesus said, I'm telling you to love your enemies. Come on. And do good to them. Jesus said these words. He said, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to people without expecting to get anything back. If you do this, 
you will have great reward. Not by God in heaven necessarily someday. That could be the case too. But you're going to have instant reward. There's just something about us. Could be that we're made in His likeness and image thing, right? There's just something about it that's so heartwarming and so rewarding when we're good to people and we help people, especially when they're our enemies. He said, you will be children of the Most High God. In other words, you don't become children of the Most High God just because you're doing that stuff, but you're expressing yourself as children of God. You're saying, there's something on the inside of me that wants to be good to you. It opens up a dialogue. It opens up a conversation like, David, I want him. And then it says, yes, because God, look at these words now, because God is good even to the people who are full of sin and not thankful. Now, boy, oh boy, that will bust your balloon, won't it? Because you think, boy, God's going to be good to me because I'm so thankful and I'm so good to people. I don't sin. I don't run around doing the dirty dozen. So God is good to me for those reasons. Well, this will bust your bubble right here, friends, because it says God is good even to the people who are full of sin and are not thankful. Give love and mercy the same as your father gives love and mercy in direct proportion, the same way to people that don't deserve it, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient, when it's timely, when it's untimely. Come on. He says, give love and mercy the same as your Father gives love and mercy. My closing scriptures and thoughts. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. Come all you who are thirsty, then underscore these words in your heart. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Now, you and I would be hard-pressed to find a passage of Scripture anywhere within the New Testament that offers a clear, finished work invitation than the one that was penned by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's invitation was a type and shadow of Jesus, the abundance within the waters. And that's why he said, come to the waters! Come to Christ, the abundant one! Isaiah's invitation compelled the Jews to forsake their contributions and to come empty-handed. Isn't that awesome? Come empty-handed to the source of that which satisfies without working, without laboring. Isaiah inspired them to come void of resources. Leave your money at home. Why would he say something like that? Why would he say that? So that they would be totally dependent upon the grace of the one who sent the invitation. Do you see that? He declared that they would drink wine and milk and that they would eat the most sumptuous of breads. It would have been their thanksgiving 
invitation. No quandary, no difficult situation, and no practical dilemma. Just come to the waters and feast. Like David, the man I met on Main Street, it was about the breaking of bread and not the buying of bread. And then he continues in the next scripture. He says this. Isaiah says, listen, come on. He says, listen, listen to me. This is their exclamation point when they double word something. Verily, verily. This is a big exclamation point. Isaiah is saying, listen, spear in the ground, exclamation point. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and let your soul, that your mind, that your will, that your emotions. He says, let your soul delight itself in fatness. Friends, the Hebrew word behind this word fatness is abundance. Let your soul delight itself in abundance because everything about God is abundant. He's not status quo. He's not mediocre about anything. He's over and above, above anything we could think or imagine. Isaiah says, let your soul delight itself in abundance. Give ear and come to me. In other words, he's saying, listen, listen and come to me that you may live. Well, one meal is not going to help you live. It's not going to make the difference of whether or not you live. So Isaiah's message is beyond a meal, a practical meal, a sit down at the table meal. Isaiah is wanting them to see you need to just come trusting in grace alone. Leave everything else at home. No quandary, no difficult situation, like no practical dilemma. Friends, I take great pleasure in that the Father would have me close the message today with the invitational bid from the prophet Isaiah. Scriptures that showcase the everlasting covenant of grace and love that was promised to who? David. It says it right there. It was promised to David. Out of all the people that were walking up and down Stevenson Street when I entered town early that morning, the father would single out a man by the name of David who I would subsequently find on Main Street as I was leaving town. And the father would whisper into my spirit the words, feed that man. He's hungry. As it turned out for David Wright, an invitation was able to bring him to the waters. David came without money and without labor. And David did eat not only of the bread, but also of Jesus, the abundance within. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Thanksgiving is more than a meal. 
It's more than an event. Thanksgiving is an expression that flows from the living waters of knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. If thanksgiving comes from within, then it stands to reason that our input determines our output. Friends, don't think it strange if you swallow a quarter, but the x-rays reflect a penny. And don't think it strange if you swallow a quarter and you spit up two dimes and a nickel. We have a lifetime of confusion and mixture on the inside of us, but be encouraged because you will gradually hear the gentle and distinguishable voice of the Holy Spirit better than you could have ever known. He will superbound in our lives over and above anything that we could ever think or imagine. As we walk through this world, we are going to occasionally find ourselves in a quandary, a difficult situation, a practical dilemma. It's just part of life. This is not a time for us to fall apart like cotton candy when it touches the tongue. But conversely, we are to remind ourselves that we are not our own Savior. We were bought with a price. Only Jesus, the abundance within us, can save us. Now, would you like to take a litmus test that reveals whether or not you are a thankful person? Here's the litmus test. Just pay attention to your words and observe your actions. The scriptures tell us for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Friends, to harness our words and to control our actions through pure willpower is not the answer our own willpower will be equal to the labor that does not satisfy the labor that the prophet Isaiah instructed the Jews to leave behind. Thanksgiving? Well, it's an inner quality. And from time to time, this inner quality is going to encounter the thief whose favorite tool is to create an exterior quandary. It is in these times that we must remind ourselves of the words that Jesus spoke on the right side of the semicolon in John chapter 10 and verse 10 when he said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. What kind of life was Jesus referring to? It's a life that transcends beyond anything we could ever face. It's a superfluous and more than necessary kind of life. It's the super added life of Christ. It's a life that's filled with God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. A life that never allows sin to increase beyond grace. You see, where the accelerator of sin is increased, the accelerator of grace is increased all the more. Friends, like David, the man I met on Main Street. I want to ask you the question, are you tired? Are you hungry? If so, I want to remind you once again of what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, come, come. 
come on, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Isaiah said, listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Friends, the invitation has been sent. The table, the banquet has been prepared. The cornucopia that spills over with the everlasting covenant and the faithful love of the Father are lavished on us through His Son Jesus, the one with the abundance within. Father, I thank You so much. I thank You so much for Your love for us. I thank You, Father, that You know how to find us when we're tired and hungry. You know how to pick the people up off of Main Street. There's so many of them there, Father. Too often we look to the natural. We want all the hoopla. We want all the shouting and the screaming and the dancing. And I'm not opposed to celebrating all the good things you do, including the miracles you do. And then we look to the Scriptures and we spend the bulk of our time pouring over the Word. But none of that is as important as your voice speaking right directly into our hearts. The disciples on the road to Emmaus learned that. Your Word had a way of burning in their hearts. So much so that they said, would you stay the night with us? We're not done listening to you. But yet they still had no revelation that it was Jesus. But when Jesus broke the bread, the bread of kindness, the bread of love, the bread of mercy and graciousness, when Jesus broke the bread and handed it to them, the Scriptures say, then, then their eyes were opened. And then Jesus disappeared. Father, you want us to trust in the things that we cannot see. It's easy to put our trust in what we can see. Our own bank accounts, our own health reports. You want us to put our trust in the things that we cannot see. The only way we get a glimpse of this in fullness is when Jesus, the darling of heaven, the crucified and resurrected one sits with us and dines. And then he reaches across the table and he pulls us into his world. What is our response? Well, it should be, 
I want him. I want him. Father, thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.